0: The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. We thank you, God, for your enduring and eternal word. Give us ears now to hear what you want to say to us. For Christ's sake and his glory, amen. You can be seated. I saw somebody describe Advent, Advent as a season of weight training, and that's W-A-I-T training. So there's your Advent pun uh, for the day. But that theme has certainly been prominent in our readings, um, even leading up to Advent. The texts talk about the promise of the return of the Lord and waiting in anticipation for the return of the Lord. And that's certainly a theme here in our epistle reading, which I want to invite you to turn your attention to, from Second Peter which is on page 9 in your bulletin. Peter uses the word waiting three times in this passage, and the focus, the object of our waiting is found in verse 13, but according to his promise, the promise of Christ, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That is what we are anticipating, brothers and sisters, a new heaven, a new earth, and it will be a place in which righteousness, as opposed to unrighteousness and evil, dwells. Righteousness can make a home in this new heaven and this new earth. And I think all of us, as we look at our world today, can connect to this longing For a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells, right? Because we see the unrighteousness of the world around us, the brokenness, the sin. Just last week a report came out that when I heard it was really shocking and uh, sobering. It's one of those things that's that's hard to hear, but we we need to hear um, the state of uh, brokenness of the world so that we can pray about it and God gives us opportunity to do something about it. But it was a report about the Syrian war, which has been going on for some seven years now, and the number of children killed in the Syrian war. And this report said approximately 14,000 children have been killed, and some of them killed in these, by these terrible barrel bombs that have been dropped near schoolyards. Uh, you hear that, and there is this longing, God, fix the brokenness of the world. And, of course, we've seen just, it seems like week after week, we hear about another person in a prominent position. Some people we didn't even expect abused their authority to to abuse others or harass others. So we are subjected to bad news all the time. We see the sin and the evil and the brokenness of our world, and there's this longing for God to do what he's promised, to come again and restore all things. But now we are in this period of anticipation, of waiting. And some people in the communities that Peter's writing to, the churches that Peter's writing to, have given up on waiting. There are some scoffers, some false teachers who have infiltrated the community, and they're beginning to say, you know what? Where is the promise of his coming? This is what Peter talks about earlier in this book. Some scoffers who are saying, Where's the promise of his coming? Things have been going on just as they always have been since the time of our fathers. He's not appeared. And so these false teachers were infiltrating the community and beginning to say, You know what? He's not coming again. And you can therefore, we can therefore live however we want. And he talks about these teachers who have, I believe it is, eyes trained uh, for greed in hearts that are full of adultery. They didn't sense that they were going to be accountable. They didn't believe that they were ultimately going to be accountable to to God. So Peter, in writing this, is wanting to, as this doubt is beginning to creep into this community, or at least there are people in the community teaching them to be skeptical about the second coming of Christ and about this hope of a new heaven and a new earth, Peter is writing to push back on that doubt that's beginning to creep, false teaching that's beginning to creep into this community. And that's what he's addressing here in this passage. And he, and he addresses three questions, uh, a why question, a what question, and a how question. That's the way I want to look at this passage. Why? Why has the Lord delayed so long? And then what is the day of the Lord going to be like? And then how shall we live in light of this this coming day. So let's look at these questions here and how Peter addresses them. First of all, why? Why is God taking so long? Why hasn't the promise happened yet? Christ promised to return and it hasn't happened. Why? And Peter gives this answer uh, in verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day day. God's view of time is different than ours. And uh, Peter is quoting here from Psalm 90, which was a psalm of Moses. So these biblical writers understood something that Einstein discovered centuries later, that time is relative depending on your position in the universe. And God's view of time God's experience of time, if we can even say that, is different than ours. So, what might seem like an interminable, long delay to us might just be a tick of the clock on God's time scale. God's clock is different than ours. And so, to people who are growing in patience, he said, Be be patient. God is at work. There's a plan here, we're not privy to it all, but God is still in control. And he experiences time different than than we do with our short little slice, little thread of time. The eternal one experiences time, relates to time very differently than us. But then Peter goes on and he explains why God is delaying or God's motive for delaying his coming. And it is the patience of God, the patience of God, the forbearance of God. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count solace, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And in verse 15, jump down there, he says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom, wisdom of God, the wisdom given to him. So between our Lord's first and second advent, his first and second coming, this is the time of salvation. Today is the day of the salvation. This is the period of God's patience. This is the era of God's forbearance. So there is still time for repentance. There is still time time for faith. There is still time for people to turn, as John the Baptist is proclaiming in the gospel, to turn in faith and repentance to the Lord. This is the era. This is the time of God's patience. This is the time of God's salvation before Christ comes, as our creed says, to judge the living and the dead. So we're in this in-between time. And part of the reason Peter is saying for the delay of the return of Christ and the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness will dwell is the patience of God. It's good for us. It's good for the world in that sense that God is waiting. He's still calling people to himself. So that's Peter's answer to the why question. And then he describes what will happen on the day of the Lord in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And this is echoing the teachings of Jesus, which we've been reading in the lectionary readings. Jesus says the Son of Man is going to come at a time that you don't expect. And he uses that image of a thief breaking into a house. A thief doesn't announce beforehand, hey, be prepared, I'm coming at 3 o'clock in the morning. No, a thief comes unexpectedly, in an unanticipated way, And Jesus says, the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you don't expect. Therefore, be prepared. Waiting is not simply uh, waiting around and doing nothing. There's preparation that's involved in this this waiting. So, Jesus teaches to be prepared, to keep on task. The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect, like a thief and So that's what Peter is doing here. He's echoing the teachings of Jesus. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then he uses some very intense imagery to describe what this will be like, the coming of the day of the Lord. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed, will be exposed. Since all these things are to be dissolved what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? He says in verse 12, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Again, very intense imagery here. He is describing the coming of Christ, the second advent, as a, as a cataclysmic, world-shattering, unprecedented event in human history and um, it's an image of 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 judgment at this point Uh, he's drawing on old testament imagery here for example isaiah 34 which says the host of heaven will wear away and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll sound familiar that's from the hymn it is well with my soul isn't that right the sky will be rolled back as a scroll. That's from Isaiah 34. And so uh, Peter is drawing on that imagery, and I think the point here is this. Heaven and earth have been separated, but when God comes, so to speak, he's going to remove that barrier of separation. The sky will be rolled back as a scroll. The, the heavens will be, will, will be torn, will be rent asunder, and God will come in judgment. That's what this imagery is meant to convey. It's going to be a day of judgment. That's why he says in verse 10, the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed, will be exposed. So nobody's getting away with anything, ultimately. People today get away with a lot of things. A lot of people get away with a lot of things. (laughs) But on that day, nobody gets away with anything. The works on the earth will be exposed. The, The separation between heaven and earth will be dissolved, and everything will be revealed, even deeds done in darkness, will be revealed in the blinding light of God's justice. That's what he's talking about here, and it'll be unmistakable, it'll come in a way that is cataclysmic, unprecedented, unmistakable when he comes again. Now, there have been some groups that have predicted the coming of the Lord Jesus, obviously they've been wrong about it, and sometimes they try to make up for that by saying, well, it was a spiritual, invisible coming. <laughs> By the way, this is what the Jehovah's Witness teach. One of the founders of the Jehovah's Witness predicted that the Lord would return in 1914. And when he didn't, they revised their teaching to say it was an invisible, spiritual coming. Well, it doesn't compute. doesn't compute with what we see here in the scriptures. There'll be no mistake about it, is what Peter is saying. And that's what the Lord taught as well when he comes again. So, it's going to be a day of of the justice of God, and God then will renew all things. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and there will be an environment there for righteousness to dwell in. And we see that picture of the new heavens and the new earth in the book of Revelation as well. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, Death shall be no more. Neither there shall be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. God will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. So that's the hopeful vision that we have. That's the promise that we have in Christ. Now, friends, if that isn't true, if this doctrine of the second coming of christ and the judgment and then the renewal of all things if that isn't true then that means that evil and injustice finally win there's going to be no ultimate resolution and we're fighting the losing battle if this isn't true then the kingdom of god that jesus ushered in remains unfinished there's and it's not going to come to a grand conclusion but it is true It is true because God raised Christ from the dead. We have evidence that the Lord is sovereign, that history is headed somewhere. It's easy for us to kind of get lulled into this idea that the scoffers were saying back in this period of time when Peter's addressing the scoffers were saying, well, everything just goes on. History just repeats itself. It's been like this and it's always going to be like this. And it's easy for us to get lulled into that. We're in this flow of history. But the scripture teaches us God is going to come. He's going to interrupt in a dramatic way this history. He's going to bring things to an ultimate resolution. There's going to be this day of final uh, restoration, ultimate restoration, new heavens, new earth. And it's true because God raised Christ from the dead. Christ has ascended in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father Almighty. And the, the spirit of God has been given to us poured into our hearts, Paul says. The spirit of hope, the spirit of love has been poured into our hearts as an anticipation, as a foretaste, as an appetizer of this great kingdom that is to come. And so that is the hope that we have tasted and that is the hope that we stand on. And so then how should we live in light of this this hope, the coming day of the Lord? How should we live in light of the truth that Christ will return and usher in this new heavens and new earth? And again, just because Peter is talking about waiting, that doesn't mean doing nothing. This isn't waiting as in, when is this person going to show up? I've got nothing else to do. I'm just standing around in the doctor's office. I thought they said they were going to get me in. It's been, I'm here 30 minutes and, you know, it's not that kind of waiting. It's not waiting stuck in line in a traffic jam. It's anticipation and it's doing something. Um, In fact, Paul, or Peter rather writes in verse 14 that as we are waiting, we're to be diligent, to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And that word diligent there, the Greek word there is the word that we get speed from. So we're to be speedily waiting. <laughs> we're to be diligent. We're to be doing something. We're about something here as we wait. And he says in verse 11, we're called then to live lives of holiness and godliness. So that's part of the work that we're called to do as we're waiting, to live a life of Holiness and godliness, and that does take work, doesn't it? That does take energy. That does take cooperating with the grace of God in our life. It's only through the grace of God that we can grow in lives of holiness and godliness, but it takes interacting with God. That takes energy. That takes prayer. That takes study. That takes discipline. That takes worship individually and corporately and taking hold of the means of grace that God has given us. That all takes work. That takes discipline. That means Christ becomes the focus of our life. We're going to go in lives of holiness and godliness that reflect something of Christ. And certainly our culture needs to see that in our lives. Culture needs to see people who are living lives of holiness and godliness. Men and women of integrity. Men and women married together who are living lives of holiness and godliness in marriage. Single people living lives of holiness and godliness in their singleness. Students in school, high school, junior high, who are different because of their commitment to Christ. They're living a life of holiness and godliness. They're a sign of something else, a sign of the kingdom of God. And that's what we're called to do. That takes work. That takes effort. And it's possible through the grace of God and the spirit that's in us. Verse 14, he says again, we're to be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. Ultimately, to be Without spot or blemish before God means that we have been forgiven and cleansed of our sins at the cross of Christ. That's how we are ultimately without spot or blemish in the presence of a holy God. And that's how we are at peace with God through the gift of salvation that's offered to us in Jesus Christ. It's not something that we have done. It's something that we receive. But the, but the context here and the tone here of this passage is is that Peter is wanting us to live out that salvation, to live and pursue a life of purity. That's really what I think he's getting after here, to live a life of holiness. We're not going to achieve spotlessness or blamelessness in our moral life, in our spiritual life, but we're to go after it by the grace of God. And so Peter's calling us to live out this salvation that's been given to us. So that takes work to grow up in this salvation, to develop a Christ-like character. In fact, he ends this letter, Second Peter, at the very end or towards the very end, he says something that some commentators say, this is the key to the whole book, this is the key to the whole letter. In 2 Peter 3.18, he says, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow in this grace that's been given to you. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what we're to be about in this waiting period. And then we're to to be about announcing the salvation that's offered to people because God, it says, God is not willing that any should perish but that all come to repentance. And so this is the time of salvation. This is the time to announce the glad tidings. This is the time to call people to turn to God as John the Baptist did in faith and repentance. To turn away from an empty life of sin and selfishness and embrace the life of Price, the abundant life, a life of love, a life of hope and peace. And so that's, that's what we are to be about in this time. You know, we just had the budget meeting. The budget is about keeping the church running in one sense, but more than that, it's about fueling the mission that God has given us to do. We're not just about keeping things up and running, but we're about the mission of God. We're living in this in-between time, and God calls us as a church to be an outpost if you will, of the coming kingdom of God, to reflect in some way this hope that we've been given and to announce that to our friends and neighbors. And so now is the day of salvation. This is the time to announce that and to call people to this hope and this faith, the hope of the renewal of all things. I'll I'll end with this story. This comes from John Ortberg in one of his books. He's a pastor out in California, but one of his books he tells the story of two men who go to a museum and they see this painting in the museum, and it's a, it's a chess match. And the, and the title of the painting is Checkmate. And it's a picture of a, a, of a person, a man, who is playing chess against the devil. And the title is Checkmate. And uh, the man only has one piece left, and that's a king. Well, the two men that are looking at this, one of, the, one of these men is an international chess champion. And uh, he said to his friend, something's bothering me about this picture. Why don't you go on and and, uh, I'm going to stay here and I'm going to think about this because something's just not right about this. And so he stayed in front of that piece of artwork for some time. His friend came back and uh, the chess champion said, "Uh, I figured out what the problem is. Uh, The king has one more move. The king has one more move. He said, we need to contact this artist and say, either change the title or change the picture because the king has one more move. And, and the and the point is this: we serve a, a living God, who's not defeated. You know, two thousand years ago, when they put Christ on the cross and sealed him in a tomb, they said, "Checkmate! It's over." Roman authorities thought they had done away with the troublemaker, but the King had one more move, and uh, he raised Christ from the dead. And friends, as we look at our world today, we can't despair. We can't give up. We cling to the promises of God that the king has one more move. Christ will come again. Christ is coming in judgment. So we announce the coming of Christ and call people to repentance. But he's coming to restore all things. A new heaven, a new earth where righteousness dwells. That's what's in store for history. And we get to be part of that mission of proclaiming that hope. What an opportunity and blessing we have. Amen. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to wait with this anticipation to be about your business. Help us not to get lulled into this false sense of everything has always been the same and everything is going to continue as it's always been. Help us to understand that you're the Lord of history. Thank you for the gift of the Spirit in our life, this witness of the coming kingdom, the love and the hope that you've poured into our hearts. Help us to live into that more and more and to, in our lives and in our words, be a witness to the hope that's in Jesus Christ for friends and family and neighbors. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.